listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Me, one of the PhD students with the program. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's how long Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin yelled on the neck of George Floyd during an arrest over an alleged counterfeit $20 bill on the evening of May 25th, 2020. The incident was captured on camera by bystanders on the street and saw Floyd repeatedly beg officers to let him go, crying, I can't breathe, as onlookers equally pleaded with officers to no avail. Eerily reminiscent of the last words uttered by Eric Garner in the final moments of his life in 2014, when he was also choked to death by a police officer in New York for selling cigarettes on the street. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's how long it took police to kill a man and to spark a national revolt in the process. These incidents, and countless others like them over the centuries, have led to a global outcry against racism and police brutality in the U.S., with protests even amidst the fear of COVID-19 not only taking place in every state in the American Union, but states around the world. Fighting back against the bigotry and systematic targeting of brown and black bodies since the very inception of the nation, citizens of all colors and backgrounds have taken to the streets, calling not only for the prosecution of police officers guilty of racialized violence, but a radical reevaluation of not only policing, but the nature of race in America today. As curfews are being enacted and quarantines defied in the name of justice, I spoke with Alexandra Wishart about the institutionalization of racism the United States. Alex is a critical race scholar and one of the PhD students in our department, with experience not only in teaching American politics in institutions like Georgia State University, but as an activist in the American South, where she spent most of her life. So we're currently caught in a moment where centuries of racism and bigotry have really caught up with the West. And you know, even here in Canada, we're seeing it with protests happening, but it's obviously been a lot more stark in the U.S., and it really the American experience with racism is what stands out through much of the world. What makes the U.S. different in terms of the prevalence and depths of systemic racism? Are there institutional origins to it, and what makes it different? Okay, so if you go through the sort of big institutions of social life and community life, right? If you look at education, for instance, in the United States, the United States is one of only three of the 34 OECD countries that give fewer resources and have lower teacher-to-student ratios in poorer communities than in more privileged communities. These communities track almost exclusively uh, along a black-white divide, In 2011, the wealthiest 10% of New York school districts, for instance, spent $25,000 per student. The poorest 10% of those school districts spent less than half, $12,500 per student. And these school districts, especially in New York, track exclusively with uh, black-white divides. And it's sort of exacerbated. When we talk about policing in the United States, we think that we're talking about black men and black women on the streets, adults that are being policed. However, if you look at suspension rates in the United States during the 2015-2016 school year, and this is the United States Department of Education that has produced these statistics, black students represented only 15% of total U.S. student enrollment, but they made up 35% of students suspended once, 44% of students suspended more than once, and 36% of students expelled. A lot of this is attached to zero-tolerance policies in the United States. Now, zero-tolerance in schools is uh, a policy of sort of broken windows theory of policing that emphasizes the importance of cracking down on small offenses. In schools, it is translated into making more suspensions for offenses that previously hadn't warranted them, talking back to teachers, skipping class, and being otherwise disobedient and disruptive. And what that means for black and racialized minorities in the United States is that they exit high school with a police record, which makes life later on, getting a job, things like that, more difficult. So that's in education just at the beginning portions. Now, I also need to sort of point out in terms of suspensions, right, that those suspension numbers start as early as preschool for black and brown children in the United States. So that you have preschool children that are, you know, four and five years old that have been suspended from school three and four times before they ever enter a formal elementary school. In terms of wealth in the United States, 
In 2016, the median net worth of non-Hispanic white households was $143,600. The median net worth for black households was $12,920. And that racial wealth gap is actually worse than it was in 1960. So these are systemic problems that are, are worsening over time. And a lot of that has to do with redlining. Redlining is a practice whereby black and brown families, and specifically black families, were not allowed to buy in certain areas of of town. They were literally redlined on real estate agent maps, which meant that they were sort of pushed into these areas of concentrated poverty and or ghettoized is, is another way of sort of saying it. But these sort of groupings of concentrated poverty have extended to today. And as a result, blacks in upper income families, not only do they tend to live in areas of concentrated poverty, that is, they still live in the same ghettos that they were born into, they are much more likely to lose their status than white children. So white children whose parents are in the top fifth of the income distribution have a 41% chance of staying there as adults, but for black children, it's only 18%. The other thing is, is that for a black person to make the same amount of money as a white high school dropout, they need to finish university. So there's a significant difference in the amount of education required for blackness to reach the sort of wealth level of whiteness. Those are systemic things, right? So redlining is a policy that emanated from Jim Crow era policies on where black people could live. And then there are things like under the New Deal, the Federal Housing Administration created loan programs to allow more Americans to buy homes, but the government would not extend those loans to black Americans. Uh, The GI Bill, which was set to help returning soldiers buy homes. Black Americans, even though they fought in the war, were not included in those policies. And a lot of this has sort of contributed to the financial problems of the United States today, right? So the 2008 financial crisis that everyone is sort of hyper aware of uh, is oftentimes in the United States, there's a sort of colloquial rhetoric of this is the problem of black people buying too much house and being not able to cover their mortgage. Well, between 2004 and 2019, Wells Fargo Bank steered 30,000 minority borrowers into subprime mortgages, and they gave prime loans to white borrowers with similar credit profiles, which was in part of the reason for this financial crisis, because those subprime mortgages that were given to minority families then ballooned up and they couldn't cover the mortgage payments, whereas white families didn't experience this. So if you look at the statistics on who lost out in the 2008 financial crisis, it hit minority communities much harder than white communities. So these systems of oppression are locked together that make it more difficult for African-American people or black Americans to get out of situations of concentrated poverty where they are heavily policed. And even when they do get out of those areas where they are being heavily policed in in ghettos and low-income areas, they are treated with suspicion because it is unusual to see, you know, a black family move into an all-white suburb, which is oftentimes the case. Now, in terms of policing, Black Americans and white Americans use drugs at similar rates, but black Americans are six times more likely to be arrested for it. And on average, when they are arrested, black men uh, in the United States receive sentences that are 19% longer than those of, of white men convicted of the same crimes. This includes everything from, you know, simple misdemeanors to felonies. In terms of black encounters with the police, blacks are less than 13% of the U.S. population, as I said, and yet they are 31% of all fatal police shooting victims and 39% of those killed by the police, even though they weren't attacking. So there is a sort of policy to treat black men as though they are more violent, more aggressive, just as that it is in schools, right? You see that in suspensions, right? Black students are more likely to be suspended. They are more likely to have a resource officer called on them. They are more likely to be tased or arrested and put in handcuffs in schools. And then they are treated that exact same way when they enter the community. A U.S. Department of Justice report on racial profiling found that blacks and Latinos were three times as likely to be stopped as whites and that blacks were twice as likely to be arrested and four times as likely to experience the threat or use of force during interactions with the police. Now, this is really important when we're looking at the George Floyd incident and Elijah McClain, which has just come onto social media. These instances, right, it is not 
it is not unusual for the police to be aggressive with black and brown members of the community. And it is very likely that if you are stopped by the police, that you will be either threatened or the use, like officers will use force or draw their gun on you or whatever else. And this extends all the way through children, right? So you have small boys that are arrested. They, the way that police officers talk to them is more aggressive than they talk to white children. And it is more violent an encounter overall. So sort of the story that I'm telling, I think, is that the policies that we decided upon in post-Civil War up to the New Deal in the 30s to Jim Crow, which was, you know, immediately after the Civil War up until the 1960s and even post-1960s, right? Like the decisions that we have made have consistently made it more difficult for Black people to get access to resources, get access to better schooling, better housing conditions, the sort of mechanisms by which we enrich ourselves and increase our capacity to participate in the community. And even when they do, which, and this is the sort of important part, right, is that even when you are upper middle class, even when you have reached that sort of socioeconomic status that would suggest that you could have a better relationship with the police, because oftentimes people sort of assume that like, well, ghettos are full of drug dealers and there's lots of weapons there, so of course police are more aggressive there. But the fact of it is, right, is that if you are black, your money will not protect you. Your money will not improve your relationships with the police. It does not decrease your likelihood of having a gun pulled on you or being beaten up by the police officers if you come into contact with them. And it does not stop you from sort of the unreasonable search and seizure that we have seen in the United States, you know, in a number of cases that have come out in the last couple of years. These are systematic decisions around policing, how the police relate to the black community and how we are going to sort of parcel off the black community as something that is less than American. It's interesting because on the outside, you know, being from Canada and such, there's this sort of uh, stereotype that it's a North and South divide uh, in terms of like the prevalence of systemic racism in the U.S. But like even in the examples you cited, like in terms of schooling in New York, we can see it's, it's not there. So is there merit to this view? And what's the origin of this train of thought that like the North and the South are different when it comes to racism? Okay, so this is very much going to sound like a Southerner defending the South. And I will be first to tell you that it's not great in the South for minorities. I'm aware. Every level of social enlightenment or position on immigration reform has a view already fixed on the what, like, what the South is. It doesn't matter whether it comes from a doctrinaire, northern liberal, convinced that the entire South is one federal restriction away from launching a wistful slave day lynch fest, or a southerner that is the sort of enlightened, woke southerner. The idea is the same, right? That the South is worse. But the truth about bigotry in Dixie is that with, with one or two exceptions, you cannot prove that racism is worse in the South than it is anywhere else in the country. Throughout the years, researchers have sort of devised a number of ways to measure racism and map Southern race, races through empirical evidence. And the vast majority of them have found that the South is no more or less racist than anywhere else. One of the most notorious sort of measures of regional racism is the hate map uh, published by the Southern Poverty Law Center located in Atlanta. And it's a state-by-state accounting of active hate groups in the United States. And the hate map is a lightning rod to Southerners and conservatives who consider that the SPLC is a communist, soccer-playing, vegan, fitted tea type of organization whose primary mission is to besmirch their good names. What they find, the SPLC, is that Tennessee has 39, Florida has 55, and Georgia admittedly has 65 active hate organizations in it. However, this all sounds really bad, but California, which is a bastion of democratic politics and a radically diverse state, has 84. So what it tends to have to do with is population density as opposed to actual feelings of the population. I do believe that even without the proof that racism is worse there, it is fair to say that race consciousness is fundamentally different in the South than it is in the North. There's a journalist, Spencer Hall, who says that race is the topic of discussion in the South and the same reason unexploded ordinance is a topic of discussion in France and Belgium. And that very much is because there was a war that we fought 
that was specifically divided over race, right? So there is something in the in the South that I think makes it feel worse, even if structurally and systemat- like systemically it isn't worse. And that's called a lost cause ideology. And that this is a, uh, or the cult of the lost cause. And this is a mythic pseudo historical construct that has helped white Southerners define a cultural identity in the aftermath of Confederate defeat. So after the war was won, the U.S. government made a decision to bring the South back into the country, and therefore they weren't treated the way that losers in civil wars typically are. They were welcomed back, and even though there was an attempt to, like, I mean, they obviously did free the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and they created the Freedmen's Bureau, which was an attempt to help freed slaves find employment, land, opportunities, but... Quickly after that, the federal government sort of pulled out of the South. So uh, there was what was called the Great Betrayal in 1877 that allowed Rutherford Hayes to be president over Democrat Samuel Tilton under the understanding that Hayes would pull federal troops out of the South who were there to enforce the 13, 14, and 15th Amendments and protect black people from white violence, which meant that there was no chasing loser in the war among the states, that there was a sort of ideology that said that, in fact— The Civil War was not fought over slavery, it was fought over economic reasons, and that it was a state's rights problem, right? So even up until the point when I attended elementary school in Hayhira, Georgia, which is a no-consequence town in, in the Deep South, I was taught that the Civil War was not called the Civil War, but in fact the War of Northern Aggression. So this was pushed very hard by Confederate veterans organizations and supporters like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who very much still exist today, who went on a campaign to glorify the Confederacy and reconstructed Southern history to clarify that the war was over states' rights rather than the right to own slaves, and that the only reason that the South lost was because the North was economically stronger and also cruel and grasping. And you may think that, like, how much could this possibly have affected sort of perceptions of the war or the Confederacy or the heritage of rebellion in in the South. But the United Daughters of the the Confederacy wrote textbooks with this, and there's a statistic that anticipates that between the end of the war and in the 1970s, when these textbooks were finally pulled out of schools in Georgia, and or excuse me, in southern states, 69 million children learned that the Civil War was not, in fact, a war over the treason of white slave owners, but was in fact this northern war of aggression that the like the North was trying to economically and physically dominate the South, even though there had been this agreement in the Constitution that protected states' rights. So I think overall, right, rather than looking at it in terms of the South is more systemically racist, is you find that racial ideology and racial iconography live right on the surface in the South. So it is very commonplace to walk out and see the stars and bars or the, the, what's it called here? The rebel flag, (laughs) you know, everywhere plastered on t-shirts and hats and trucks and everything else. And in fact, I think of it and as I drove between my mother's house and my house, so I lived in Atlanta and my mother, as I said, lived in Valdosta, which is a very small town in South Georgia. It's a four-hour drive. And one of the ways that I knew how to get halfway was there was a continent-sized rebel flag that you could see from the interstate. Now, minorities from places that aren't the South might anticipate that this was like trailer park gentry that had erected this monument to to civil war generals and it was a like a kkk headquarters or something like that but it was not it was a grocery store and a and a gas station and they just had a really large rebel flag and that was not unusual so i think that there is a feeling that racism is worse in the south because it is so present all the time i i was taught really early on that Southerners like minorities close but not equal, and Northerners like them equal but not close. Because there are so many Black Americans that live in the South still, I find that racism is sort of always there and always a cagey topic, but 
it, it's not that it's missing in Boston. It's just not talked about in Boston in the way that it is acknowledged in the South, which I don't think it makes it better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, obviously, throughout the U.S., we've we've seen the oppression of black bodies. And you know, where there's oppression, there's usually resistance. And these days, that resistance is loud and very clear and very present, not just in the U.S., but around the world. You know, what's the history of anti-racist resistance looked like in the U.S., and how has it changed over time? So... There has been lots of anti-racist resistance, although you would call it slave revolts in in the early portions of of American history. And you saw that that was really one of the largest, I think that we'll talk about later on about sort of the origins, the racist origins of of policing in the United States. One of the the biggest reason for establishing any kind of patrols in the South early on, and this is as early as the 1700s, was the threat of, of slave revolts and slaves attempting to sort of free themselves from bondage and get away to places like Canada or the West where there was they were much less likely to be enslaved. But in terms of real organized movements, I think I would be remiss if I did not start in the 1950s, I think, which was was the movements of Martin Luther King and the SELC, which is his organization that organized anti-racist nonviolent protests. Now, I need to say, because there's been a lot of talk about people being very frustrated because there are rioters and there is property destruction now in what is going on in the United States now. But I really dislike when people tend to say, oh, well, you should be like Martin Luther King and do peaceful protests. King did not advocate peaceful protests. King advocated nonviolent resistance, which is what you had to do is you had to resist even though the police or vigilantes or just regular racist white people came and kick the snot out of you in public. And you had to take that because what King was attempting to do, right, is show the brutality of the state and the brutality of racism against black people by having those people be brutalized on national television. So these were not peaceful protests in that you should do them in your backyard quietly and nobody should ever notice them. What King was actively trying to do was was not ever show black men or women being angry or violent or any of the stereotypes that were associated with black people. But what he was trying to show, right, that there is violence and it is not my community, it's not my community that is committing these atrocities, right? It is implicating the state in their violence. But that was a very, it's been sort of white, I hate to use that term, it's been whitewashed uh, over the years in this idea that King was nonviolent and peaceful and sort of these were just marches that got out of hand. That was not in fact all there was. But I think the reason that in the 1960s King's movement was so successful is because it it stood in, I will say it this way, violent opposition to Malcolm X and the eventual rise of the Black Panther Party. Malcolm X advocated the arming of black people. The Black Panther Party specifically grew out of a desire to police the police. So uh, Black Panther members would go out armed with, you know, long guns or whatever else, and they were very openly carry, and they would go on what were called cop-watching patrols, which were literally them going out and watching the police to see that they were not beating up innocent black people. I mean, it is this, it is the moral equivalent of people walking around with their cell phones and videotaping police encounters because there was no record otherwise of those, of those movements. But the Black Panthers so badly scared white people. And I, you know, like I say this sort of glibly, but they so badly scared white people. First of all, what you had is a huge change in the way that uh, Second Amendment rights were broadly construed in the United States. This was the whole, there was a whole change in the way that gun rights were constructed in the U.S. Because prior to the 1970s, there was almost no legislation on, on gun rights whatsoever. And now it is prevalent in all 50 states. But what this did was scared people so badly that there that there were going to be like black what they called them vigilantes walking around with long guns that it moved the Overton window so that the sort of demands of the SELC and the civil rights movement were making seemed very reasonable by comparison. 
Now, as you move sort of forward in time, I sort of would like to note the 2014 rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. It was a consequence of the murder of Michael Brown, who was an 18-year-old boy who was shot in the back by a Ferguson police officer. But in those protests... Uh, There was a lot of black faces, very few white ones, which led to some government response in in the popularization of body cams and an attempt to get some data on the use of force by officers. But it was very obviously construed as a black problem, that black people being beaten up by the cops was a black community issue, and this was not something that concerned white people. Now, if you look at the people that are out in the streets and the people that are protesting, you see many more white faces. And and I think this is most sort of brought to a head. If you think about uh, a couple of, I think it was last week, uh, there was a CNN graphic that showed that there were protests in all 50 states. Now, I can tell you that there are about seven black people in Montana, which suggests to me that the protests in Montana are being organized by white people, which suggests a huge shift in the level of awareness of police brutality against black people, but also it suggests that there's been a re-narration of how we construe black people as being part of the American community as opposed to being part of the black American community, which is therefore not our as white people, like it's not our problem. And I think that that's very important because it really does suggest that there's been a monumental shift in, in the way we construe this, not just as like a, a, a race problem, but as a uh, civil rights and liberties problem. And when it can be construed that way, I think it's a really important way of understanding and, and legislating this kind of brutality. I'm glad you brought up Black Lives Matter and kind of everything that's shifted since 2014, because I really want to get into the present moment as well. Because one can't help but look at the presidency of Donald Trump and wonder how it has really exacerbated what we're seeing like I, even here in canada i remember the day after trump got voted in all over toronto and this is literally the day after they were they were called to arm posters to join the alt-right um and i can't help but wonder like in your view how has the presidency of donald trump impacted race relations in the u.s and perhaps more importantly the anti-racist movement against it so if you look at public opinion polling pew recently did a a survey of how 45, I tend not to use his name just because I feel like we are inundated with an ugly word. So Pew did some public opinion polling on race relations in the United States right now. And 56% of Americans, that's 49% white and 73% of black people polled think that the president has made race relations worse. 15 say that he has improved race relations and another 13% say he has tried but failed to make any progress on the issue. Now, I I think the 13%, which initially were kind of puzzling for me, but I don't know if you heard about this or can't, like, this got to Canada, but Kim Kardashian decided to lobby the president to get the First Step Act passed, which was a sort of early criminal justice reform. It is very small and very limited. However, it was something that the Republicans and then 45 signed that was an attempt at trying to reduce the incarceration level of black people in the United States. So I think that that 13% is saying that, well, he did try and do something. But overarchingly, right, you see the president using the strongest power that he has, which is the bully pulpit, to go on television and say that it's okay if police officers rough up suspects. He is the quote unquote law and order president. Now, I don't I don't know what the the meaning of law and order in Canada is in the same way that I do in the United States. It is not just a TV show uh, written, (laughs) written with, you know, like a liberal enthusiastic DA that goes in and tries to do good all the time. Law and Order is a specific 1980s construct that was produced by the Reagan administration, and it is very racialized, right? The idea of having a law and order president is one that leans heavily on the police and leans heavily on incarceration as opposed to community policing, or which is, there's also problems with that, but alternative forms of engagement with the state. So Donald Trump is perfectly willing to go on television and be racist. And the public opinion polling on that strongly suggests that at this point, most Americans think that 
this president is racist outright, right? It is, it is unreformed in the way that Woodrow Wilson was unreformed racist. And because of that, I think that it has really sort of put a fine point on the fact that it is not just uh, neglect, right? That black people are not just, if they just worked harder or they were just, they went by the rules or played by the rules and worked within the system that they would be fine, right? There's this concept now that has started bubbling up, especially in what I would consider as white liberals, which have been not great on race relations in the United States, have started to see that, oh, well, this is maybe, maybe something else is going on here that isn't just black people are not working within the American system. And in terms of actual policy, so there's a thing called consent decrees, which are agreements that resolve a dispute between two parties without the admission of guilt. Now, in police departments, this is sort of when there have been persistent accusations of police misconduct, excessive use of force claims, the federal government has had a history of going in and suing those police departments so that they can be under federal, not management, but monitoring. And George Bush, who is no friend uh, to black people, if you ask Kanye West, well, actually, I don't know what Kanye West would say now, but (laughs) at the time... (laughs) Right. George Bush was not considered a friend to black people as the his, you know, treatment of Katrina and and his consideration of the problems of policing at the time used 13 of these consent decrees. President Obama used 18 of these consent decrees to monitor and require statistics on use of force, officer involved shootings and the way in which uh, the police are interacting with the communities. The Trump administration has not has not used this one time. They have effectively abandoned broader investigations into into unconstitutional policing practices. Half a dozen former DOJ lawyers who worked on similar cases told CNN recently that they have essentially given up on the federal government's most effective tools to fight police misconduct. And you see that too as Bill Barr, who is the uh, Attorney General of the United States, came out on June 7th, that is this month in, in this year, 2020, the year of our Lord, and said that there is no systemic racial profiling in policing. And I think that that really sends a specific message to people that are frustrated by this, that the federal government is not coming to help anybody. The federal government is not going to step in into racist local police departments and make this any better, that the federal government has just abdicated its role altogether. And what that's done is made people who were frustrated but hopeful that a Justice Department led by President Obama, for instance, who was the first black president, that they would come in and do something, right? That he could see that there was this injustice. And so President Obama, as the leader of the country, would would direct his Justice Department to go in and investigate this thing, which by and large he did. But now with 45, there just is no impetus whatsoever for the federal government to involve itself in racialized policing practices. And so people are saying, well, there is no one else. It is it. We have to go out in the streets because no one is coming to help us. Policing is obviously the big issue, right? We It's the rally call behind the protest movements that are going on now. And yeah, when we look at cases like Elijah McClain and George Floyd, it's the police that are behind some of the, some of the most heinous acts that are happening in modern America. And for many, the norms of the state are no more transparent in terms of who they police and how they police it. And in the U.S., black bodies, as you've said, have been policed with brutal violence. Where does this emanate from? So a couple of places. The first thing that I would mention is the Fugitive Slave Act. There is a a requirement written into the Constitution that slaves that escaped their masters had to be returned to them. So some of the first sort of police bodies in in the United States were were bounty hunters, essentially. Now, I, I need to take a moment to sort of differentiate the way that the North evolved on policing and the way that the South evolved on policing. The first formalized police department in in the North was in Boston, and it was created, I think, in 1864. And that is the sort of traditional police department that you might think of today. However, 
Policing in the South began much earlier than it did in the North, and it was in the form of slave patrols. These are squadrons of white volunteers empowered to use vigilante tactics to enforce the laws related to slavery. They located and returned enslaved peoples who had escaped, crushed uprisings, which, as I said, this was a very hot topic for the South, especially after the Haitian Revolution. Southerners, if you go back and look at sort of the documentation that we have from those time periods, it was very obvious that Southern slave owners were very concerned with the idea that there would be slave uprising or revolt. So these slave patrols were first out of South Carolina in the early 1700s, and these patrols were empowered with the ability to forcefully enter anyone's home, regardless of their race or ethnicity, based only on the suspicion that they were sheltering people who had escaped bondage. And they were the central sort of initial push of policing in the South, and for a long time it was the only thing that they had in the South that constituted a police force now this was white people in the community where they were volunteers but everyone was sort of expected to participate in these things and in some states even white women participated south carolina in its one moment of gender equality south carolina is not known for gender or race equality however in early slave patrols white women were permitted and encouraged to participate in these patrols they used what were called Negro dogs, which were the dogs that they bloodhounds oftentimes, but they were also these big, there's some variant of a cane corso, so like 100-pound dogs that were taught to tree slaves and maim them. It was, in fact, it was like your, uh, it was kind of considered like your rap sheet, right? That they would sick a dog on you if you had tried to run away or were thought to have run away because what it would do was it was it would alert future masters that you were a problem slave. And so these Negro dogs, which I will talk about again in a second, were used to police black bodies in the South. I mean, right up until the war. And then subsequently after, the same sort of tactics were picked up in Jim Crow laws. So you had what were called vagrancy laws, which were if you did not have employment or you had no means of support, you could be arrested and into uh, what was called contract leasing. So you were arrested and you were a prisoner and then you were shipped off to a farm to do the same exact work as you had done pre-Civil War. So there's this sort of continuity in the South that has extended long before the Civil War, but extends right up until the present. So if you look at, um, especially with vagrancy laws, this is this feels very sort of present. So in June 1992, the Chicago City Council passed a loitering ordinance that gave police officers exceptionally broad power to disperse any group or of, of two or more people standing in public if the police suspected that that group included a gang member. This is sort of the basis for New York's stop and frisk laws, which I'll also address in a second. But during the three years that the law was in effect, it yielded the arrest of more, more than 40,000 citizens, 90% of whom were black or Latino residents of inner city neighborhoods. So it is this idea that if you are standing around and you don't seem to have, like you have anything to do, then you should be arrested or bothered by the police is very prevalent, especially where there are high concentrations of black or brown bodies. If you look at the, the sort of 1990s, but also early 2000s policy of stop and frisk, which was in New York. This was the attempt of New York mayors to clean up, air quotes, right, clean up the city. But in, in 2012, the NYPD stopped and interrogated 530,000 people, which was a 448% increase to street stops in 2002. Now, this is stop and frisk has since been challenged, but 2012 is not that long ago, right? That was eight years ago. And of the times there was a police stop, 20% or 100,000 of those times included officer-involved violence. 90% of the people that were stopped with stop-and-frisk policies were black or Latino, and white people accounted for only 10%. So when you're looking at the statistics here, our theories around policing, and specifically the policing of black bodies, is, is heavily sort of directed at involving the police in people's private lives consistently, right? If for a while there in the 90s in New York, one out of every three black men were going to be stopped by the cops annually. This is 
white people have never had this kind of intrusion of the police into their lives, which is, it explains the tendency, right? That black people and white people use drugs at the same rates, but black people are much more likely to go to jail for the use of drugs is because they are being stopped by the police way more often than white people ever do. And, and it is not, I heard somebody the other day talking about, you know, if we went into an affluent white neighborhood, you wouldn't see all these police around. And that's actually not true, right? White neighborhoods have police forces, oftentimes private police forces, that'll go around and ensure that there's nobody breaking in or whatever else. But it is the intent of police officers in those neighborhoods, which is not to disrupt your daily life, but is to just be there just in case. Whereas in the inner cities and and places where there are heavy concentrations of minorities, the intent is almost counterinsurgency. It is a consistent ideology of trying to disrupt criminal behavior, which we assume these black people are engaged in. Another sort of issue that we don't tend to deal with in terms of policing is that officers who are fired for misconduct are frequently rehired, especially in cases of brutality or racial profiling and things like that. Police officers that are dismissed because police unions are so strong in the United States, it's probably the the last vestige of what would be called union politics in the country. Oftentimes, those records of being fired for misconduct are sealed, and therefore they they don't go to the next county over where the where this person that's been dismissed is going to look for a job. So uh, this was especially notable in in 2014. A 12 year old boy, Tamir Rice, was fatally shot by a Cleveland. Ohio police officer. And it was found out afterwards that this officer had been at another police department and was dismissed for police misconduct associated with racial profiling and then was hired on in Cleveland because Cleveland didn't actually review the officer's personnel file before hiring him. An investigation in the records, uh, the public records from Florida showed that about 3% of the state's police force had previously been fired or had been re-signed in lieu of being dismissed, and that police union contracts often negotiate that police officers who are fired for misconduct are never questioned even about those things. So not only are the records not sent over, they are fundamentally not even allowed to be asked about whether or not they were fired for misconduct or, or racial profiling or any of the other things that are associated with that. Returning to, I just think this is a really interesting part of the history that sort of ties us back to 1850, right? So the the first thing that I would say is that there are more black people that are locked up in prison right now than there were enslaved in 1850. And Michelle Alexander, just if you're interested in this and you want to read something that is very well sourced and absolutely unimpeachable in terms of like where she's gotten all of her information. There's a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. It is wonderful. It is very difficult to read because it's hard to sort of take in this kind of very obvious racism in in the country, but it she has sourced everything and footnoted everything. So if you would like to look at the statistics, I strongly recommend it. But in terms of the continuity that has existed since basically the Civil War, I had mentioned earlier that slave patrols, early slave patrols employed what I called Negro dogs, which were dogs that were used to track and maim slaves that were caught out without permission in the American South. Those dogs are still very much employed today. The St. Louis Police Department, which was one of the first formal police departments in the South, employed Literally, they took slave patrol people that had these dogs and they then employed them as police officers in the formal police department. Those same dogs have been used to today. And in a 2015, so St. Louis is the the bigger city that Ferguson is attached to. So Ferguson was where uh, Michael Brown was murdered by an officer. And there was a lot of protests in 2014 uh, surrounding that death. So there was a consent decree opened by the government, and what they found was the St. Louis Ferguson Police Department showed that the use of police dogs to catch and maim citizens was exclusively determined by the color of the people, so that 100% of police dog deployments was against people of color. So these same sort of uses and and tactics of, of the South have been used consistently, and that's not even to speak of right, this sort of complex interweaving of, 
of vigilante groups like the KKK and the police departments, right? So I'm just talking about the formal police, but I, I don't want listeners to think that, well, the KKK is some racist group of jerks that exist separate from the police department because the KKK, which was the Ku Klux Klan, which was initially, I mean, it was created to be a whites only white nationalist organization. Oftentimes prominent members of the community were prominent members like grand wizard of the KKK was the sheriff of the town. Right. And so there's, there's a story from South Carolina where a freedman's patrol that was, had sort of, they were working as a police department for the black community, got into it with white criminals and they shot one of them. And there was nearly a race war and a bunch of these black militiamen, I will call them, right, were rounded up and arrested. Whether or not they had anything to do with it was beside the point. It was just a bunch of black people who were taken to the, the jail. What then happened is there was this faux struggle where the sheriff sort of put a deputy on guard and told them to let this mob of of KKK members come into the jail, but they had to make it look like there was a struggle in case anybody asked. And then the problem was is that the deputy then as soon as he like lost his keys and was vanquished by the KKK, he was seen putting on the robes of the KKK to then go and participate in what was a, eventually a lynching. So you cannot, the power structure of the United States, now I need to point out that the first KKK was not established in the South. It was established in the Midwest. So I don't, I don't want you to think that this is just a Southern problem, but Racist groups like the KKK and, and, and others such as those are generally the way that they can operate is because they are attached to existing power structures that are formalized government structures. So the police department, the judiciary, et cetera. So you, you have the policing of black bodies now in the sort of post-war era, they called them sundowner clubs, which are these vigilantes that would go around looking for black people out after curfews, which curfews are now people are complaining about and being tear gassed over and stuff like that in the protests. But curfews for black people after the war were very common. And it was really the only way to like stay alive was to be at home. Because if they caught you out, right, that, that was where sort of the racialized terror was executed. It was at night. But those, those clubs, I, I, organizations, I guess, right, it would not exist without the sort of turning the other way, if not outright support of the police departments, right? So you, you don't get one without the other. And they, I, I cannot emphasize enough the way that they are inextricably linked to one another, the issues you're talking about here, obviously, they're playing into today. And as a result, defund the police has become one of the slogans of the current surge of activism. What, what does this actually mean? So it's complicated, <laughs> as many things are. But there are some people who mean that we should just abolish the police, right? There was an abolish ICE movement in the United States. There is an abolish the police movement. There is a close the jails movement that has been specifically targeting Rikers Island in New York for many years. But typically what they mean when activists say defund the police is that they would like to take some of the expenditures that have been given to police departments and reallocate those funds, some of them, some of the funds, into things that don't end up with an armed police officer at your door, right? So if you think about the reasons why we need police officers, the vast majority of the time, you don't actually need somebody with a gun to show up at your house, right? If somebody breaks into your house and steals your television and they are long gone by the time you get there, you don't need a police officer with a weapon. What you need is somebody to come out and fill out the paperwork so that you can file it with your insurance. So the idea here is that to go back to the Atlanta example that I had used, 11% of the total budget of the city of Atlanta goes to policing. Whereas the Department of Planning and Community Development, which is, this includes funding for transportation planning and affordable housing, gets 1.2% of the city budget. And what people are asking for is rather than spending so much money on the police, the actual, the sort of armed patrols, what we would like to do is take some of that money and put it into things that would prevent crime and prevent the need for calling police 
So things like mental health, which in the United States, there basically is no mental health system. So that people that are have mental health issues, one of the only ways that they get treatment is they get arrested by the police. But what this means, right, is that the police officers are having to play social worker and counselor and caretaker, and they are trained to be akin to a military force, right? And so what you end up having is people with with mental health issues or a case not that long ago of a man with severe autism. He was like basically had the mental development of a six-year-old. The police were called on him because he was large and very clearly in distress. And rather than helping him, they shot him. And when you're asking people that are trained to their sort of first dictate of, of a police officer is do whatever you have to do to get home alive. So if you're scared, then use your weapon. If somebody's threatening you, use your weapon. There is a perverse incentive that the police have because we have taken away all of the other social services that used to sort of deal with things like mental health or drug addictions and things like that. And we've said, no, police officers just have to be called and dealt with for all of these things. And when you do that, right, you end up with more shootings because police officers are trained to get home alive. So the idea behind the defund the police movement is to try and reorient some of those funds that we have traditionally funneled into the police and and people are increasingly upset because of the militarization of the police. I'll say another book that if you're interested in, Radley Balco wrote this book called Rise of the Warrior Cop that talks about the increasing militarization of the police, the increasing access to the police of things like tanks and uh, automatic rifles and body armor that have been used by the U.S. military that increasingly sort of alienate the police from the community. When you have that, then you will inevitably increase violence. So what we're trying to do is instead of spending money on Sherman tanks and the armored Humvees and things like that, is we would spend some of that money on social workers and drug addiction counselors and plans for people that are having a hard time out on the street because there are people, if you look at sort of inner cities especially, a former partner of mine, he was an assistant district attorney in Fulton County, which Fulton County is the center of Atlanta. And he would have people that had come in And they were arrested 50, 60, 80 times. And it was because they had a mental health problem. They would go in. They would be arrested for trespassing, basically. They would go into jail because it was three hots and a cot, right? They were being fed. They were being given their medicine. And they had somewhere to sleep that was safe. Now, police officers should not be doing that. We should be attempting to find those those people you know, a place in a homeless shelter or some plan so that they can get their medications. And the idea behind defund the police is rather than spending our money on the police, let's spend it on no turn away homeless shelters so that these people are not trespassing, right? So rather than criminalizing poverty and mental health problems and drug addictions, we are trying to decriminalize this space and provide resources for those people so that they are not just going into prisons consistently. Obviously, this is tied to so many things, you know, not even speaking of other issues like patriarchy and such like that. And as a result, you can't help but just view, you know, race relations in the States being just this absolute quagmire without a solution. Something like defund the police and other initiatives, is there even an opportunity to turn these these trends around? I think Part of the problem is that it stems right from now. I had talked about the lost cause ideology and the way that the South was sort of welcomed back into the into the United States as being sort of wayward children, right? The prodigal son has returned. And because of that, all of the sort of race relations and 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 racist ideology was subsumed under formalized policy. And this was made worse in the 1990s with what was called a colorblind policy. I think this is probably maybe in Canada as well, right? That we don't collect statistics. We don't validate the experiences of black and brown Americans in the way that suggests that there is validity to them, right? That, that it is a real lived experience that they are being oppressed by the police, that they are being excluded from buying homes in certain areas, that their children are not being educated properly. And 
because the United States is so, and it has been since the war, essentially, right? We have been trying to make ourselves a quote-unquote post-racial society for so long, but what is necessary first is to acknowledge that right now we are a racial society, that there is a specific and ironclad racial hierarchy. And and people tend to say, you know, well, there was a black president, so obviously racism is over. But it is the exception that proves the rule, right? That President Obama was 44 presidents in, and he was the first, right? It's not as if black people just got to the United States, right? They were brought here, and like the first slave entered the United States in 1609. So the first sort of thing that you have to do is acknowledge. And now, I am of two minds about the idea of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I know that there's one in Canada. There are obviously very famous examples of one in South Africa, and I think that they can be useful, but I do not think that Truth and Reconciliation can happen sort of shuttered away, um, you know, in a government hearing that nobody attends, right? That this has to be something that happens in communities where the history and and legacy and the strings that tie us to explicitly racist paths are are brought forward and pulled taut so that we understand how these sort of these legacies still affect and shape us today. So I think that there needs to be an explicit recognition of the lived experience of black and brown minorities in the United States before anything can happen. And now I am also ambivalent on the case for reparations. Ta-Nehisi Coates in The Atlantic did an incredible article called The Case for Reparations that I was quite persuaded by. I, I am unclear that we would ever be into that kind of space. However, I think that if we recognize first that there is systemic inequality in education, in the medical field, in policing, in housing, if we start recognizing those things, then we can start picking apart the laws that support those things, because the, the laws now, because it's in the Constitution that you can't discriminate based on race, right? The laws are written in a way that seem race neutral, but in fact, consistently reinforce racist stereotypes and racist attitudes that were put down in the country in, in pre-Civil War. So I, I think the first way through is that there needs to be national but localized truth and reconciliation commissions. And then the second thing that I think we need to do is start looking very carefully at education because education has been sold to the American people and I think most of the world, right, as the it is a liberatory fantasy that we have all been educated in, that if you can just go to school and get through school, then you can get a job and you can sort of do better in life. Now, I don't think education is going to fix everything because there are tons of statistics on people with black names not being hired at the same rate as white names, even though they have the exact same qualifications. But I think what needs to happen is not just that we need to have black people educated more, is that what we need to be doing is in schools, we need to be teaching children, both white and black, that the country has a racist history and that that history extends to today. And that you need to make not just race-neutral policy or not just race-neutral proclamations of support or whatever, but that we need to actually treat this as a disease and we need to take steps to be anti-racist. Specifically, that we need to teach children as early as we can get them that there are links and assumptions and stereotypes that are woven into the American sort of cultural milieu and that they need to examine those things. And if you're saying something about, you know, nappy hair or whatever else, right? Like the things that sort of are part of common parlance, right? You need to examine how those stereotypes are then pushed into your life, right? And that it becomes sort of right from sort of the beginning of formal education. In schools, we need to be asking what policies are continuing these sort of racial stereotypes and racial inequalities in education. But we also need to be explaining to students sort of a consistent and reflexive practice of anti-racism. And I say, I mean anti-racist in a very specific way, that you are not just not prejudiced, but that you are consistently 
looking in yourself and at the structures that you exist in and, and benefit from and asking, does this privilege me because I am white? Do I have this, as Peggy McIntosh would say, right, this knapsack of white privilege? And am I benefiting from that in a way that somebody who, all, who is in my class or is, is in my life is not benefiting from? And I think you can do that with young children. I, I, white people get very upset, right? Because they're like, oh, we can't ex- expose the children to the brutality of racism, right? But what we're asking for when, when I talk about this, right, is, is to teach children very early on that this country has historically treated black people differently and that that is not okay. And we need to interrogate both our own practices and the practices of people around us and structures around us that disenfranchise and, and sort of exclude black people. And I think you can do that in children in because children are not, you know, there are all these things around every time that there's like a race problem in the United States. And I say that as glibly as humanly possible, but anytime that there's sort of one of these things, you see all these posters from well-meaning white liberals that say, oh, well, racism is stupid and we're all the same and whatever else. But we actually need to interrogate the structures that make it that white people benefit from, even if they don't actively participate in. I benefited as a white person from my whiteness in school. I benefited from it in stores. I benefited from it when I went to apply for jobs. Even though I am not a racist, I am participating in systems of inequality or matrices of domination. And we need to examine those and we need to start it in schools. And I think that that is the best way forward is that if there is a reckoning and then there is a point where the United States says, yes, we did have racist policy. We did create this inequality. We did make it so that one group of people was systematically excluded from the wealth of the American dream and the promises of the Constitution. And we are going to stop that now. And that that process is reflexive and it is consistent. But it is, there are children, right, that could live in a world that does not look like this world. There are people that could be engaged in a world that does not systematically exclude black and brown bodies from the wealth and the promise of the city on the hill that was promised with the construction of the American constitution and the American system. So I think, I think the first way is sort of a national reckoning and then a conscious integration of anti-racist reflexive practice right into school systems is a huge thing because it is not going to evaporate overnight. We cannot just make black homes worth more we cannot make black diplomas worth more. We cannot erase sort of the internalized racism of choosing black names or white names or whatever else. What we can do is sort of start with the ones that are not steeped in this tradition of racialized exclusion and racialized hierarchy, that we can start there. And then the other thing is, is that we have to reform policing. Again, it won't eliminate racism. It won't erase the past. It won't do any of the things that we would prefer that it did. But what it will do is mean that black people are arrested less. Black people are incarcerated less. And that makes an enormous difference, right? Is we have to reform policing. And I'm not just talking about doing anti-profiling seminars and things like that. We need to reform the way that we criminalize black bodies and the way that we deploy police officers and sort of the theory of policing, this is not an anti-insurgency, right? These are communities of Americans that are due, by dint of their citizenship, the protection of the Constitution, the civil rights and liberties that were promised in the, in the amendments that were forced into the Constitution right at, right at its signing, that these people are part of us, right? I really think it is important that police officers are of the community, which is oftentimes a problem in the United States, right? That police officers live in another community, that they live far away, that they drive into work. I think it is important that police officers are of the community and that the priority is not necessarily do anything that you can to get home alive, which I'm not advocating that police officers should just like let themselves be shot, right? What I'm advocating is, is that There is something that you owe to the community that does not involve a weapon, that does not involve a badge, that this community needs to be made better by your presence. 
So I think the the eight can't wait is a good start. There are lots of problems with that, but I think like a reformation of policing and the theory of police is a really important sort of first step in addressing racial disparities in the United States. Okay, I guess lastly, and this is completely unrelated to any of the stuff we've really been talking about, although maybe it is somewhat related. You know, what's what have you been working on lately? You're one of the PhD students in the department. Tell us a bit about your work. So my research is a bit varied. I am an African specialist by training, and my previous work has focused on uh, civil wars and the duration and termination literature of civil wars. I wrote my master's thesis on the persistent war in northern Uganda, but my dissertation topic will likely be the impact of foreign aid on the consolidation of democracy in poorly institutionalized countries, specifically in Africa, but also in Asia as well and, and Latin America. More recently, I think that that's a bit more attached to this. My scholarship has moved toward looking at citizenship regimes. Now, these are the rights and responsibility of citizens to their government and the rights and responsibilities of the government to their citizens. And the construction of what I'm calling anti-state citizenship regimes, that is an idea of what being a citizen means, where you stand in opposition to the state, and specifically in the American context, what I'm interested in is the creation of anti-state citizen regimes in the Republican Party and conservatives in the United States. Since the 80s, right, the the idea that Reagan said that, that government is not the solution, right? The government is the problem. There has been this move and and call in the conservative party of the of the United States and and sort of even the most fringy portions of the Republican Party has been that it is your patriotic duty to resist the state in all forms, right? And what that has meant is that any state incursion into guaranteeing equality or promoting the rights of people that are marginalized is all seen as this inappropriate intrusion of the state. And it's become a real problem for the Republican Party because now that they're in power, right, 45 is the president and they control the Senate, so effectively Republicans control the government, they're having a really hard time making the turn towards state representations of citizenship, right? That the state is actually protecting your interests and doing your bidding. There is a very anti-science, anti-state ideology that has developed in the United States. And I think that that is interesting because of the juxtaposition with the sort of anti-state ideology that is present in minority communities, right? The government does not represent them. They do not trust the government. They do not trust the police. Um, They will not participate in police investigations oftentimes. They will not call the police if something happens. That we are creating these groups of people that exist in the United States that do not trust and do not have any use for the state. Now, this has come out of civil war research for me because what happens in civil wars is you oftentimes have rebel units that are actively in rebellion against the state, controlling portions of the population and and territory that are creating these anti-state regimes. But I, I think the United States is a really interesting case of this because there is no war. But I think that that's really important and it's it's something that is radically understudied. I, I find there's very little information on that or rebel governance or the sort of anti-state citizenship regimes that I'm interested in. So it's sort of tangentially related, I think, but uh, that's what I'm working on now. Definitely interesting stuff and totally relevant to the conversation we're having today. So thank you for sharing it with us and talking with us about this stuff as well. No problem. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore Poly dot Sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU dot PolySci.